friends, let us now listen to Brother Mel Caparos, pastor of Living Word Christian Churches of Cebu International. For the Lord, and let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you and bless you for this wonderful time you've given us, O oh God, that we might be able to gather together and worship your holy name. Thank you for the songs of grace, and thank you for the words of prophecy that were spoken in our midst, O oh God. Thank you that you are a God whom we can commune with, a God in whom we can be intimate with. And we thank you, dear Lord, that you took us by the power of your love, and we continue to bask in this love and savor your glory, your presence, your majesty. And Lord, we are continually in awe of everything that you do. At times we get distracted, but we thank you that you pull us back and plant our feet on the rock. And our prayer, O oh God, this morning is that you might speak to us in a very special way. I pray for myself, O oh Lord, your humble servant, that you might equip me and empower me that as I speak, Lord, your people will understand that you are the one who is speaking to them. Anoint your word, O oh God, that we might grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ. And whatever is going to be achieved today, we will give you back the glory, the praises, and the thanks. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen and amen. Let's be seated in the presence of the Lord. We are now concluding the uh, second installment of a series which I have entitled The Tragedy of Neglecting a Prayer. Last weekend, we saw the consequences of the neglect of prayer among the Jews. And, of course, you have probably been watching uh, CNN and BBC News or Fox News, and you probably know what is actually taking place right now in Bethlehem, the place where Jesus was born. And right now, there are riots that are taking place. Uh, there's been a lot of violence, actually, and a few people have died as a result of the violence uh, taking place. And so, when we take a look at that, we cannot help but shake our heads at the continual suffering that the Jews are experiencing even up to this point in time. And I cannot help but go to the Scriptures and find the answers there for their suffering. And already last weekend, we mentioned the fact that there were certain things that were amiss in so far as the Jews were concerned. And of course, the major sin that they had committed was the rejection of their very own Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. 
And that proved to be very, very costly. It began with the destruction of Jerusalem. The temple was burned in 70 A.D. And from that time on, for more than 2,000 years, or rather for a thousand years or so, they have continued to suffer. And again, what was the reason? It was because they rejected their Messiah. But there were other factors as well. We asked the question, why then did they reject the Messiah? Well, I mentioned to you the fact that their hearts were not prepared. And the reason why their hearts were not prepared was because they were not praying correctly. We used the example of the temple last weekend, and we know what happened there. The Lord Jesus Christ overturned the tables, and He drove out the vendors out of that place. And in anger, He said, this house is supposed to be a house of prayer, but you have made it a robber's den. That event was actually an indictment on the spiritual state of the Jews. And as I mentioned to you, from that time on, they had suffered greatly. I also mentioned to you the fact that the temple was made not only is a place where atonement would take place, uh, forgiveness of sins as a result of the sacrifices, it was also supposed to be a place of prayer. But sadly, they neglected to fulfill the will of God. There are three things I'd like to share to you today, and I'd like to make it very simple for us. First of all, I'd like to be able to show you a picture. And after showing you this picture, which also came from the Lord Jesus Christ, I'd like to be able to explain to you the lesson. And then after that, I hope to be able to issue a challenge to each and every one of us. So let's begin with the picture. After the dramatic event at the temple, Jesus leaves for Bethany. So he goes there uh, together with his disciples and when they wake up in the morning, there was an event, actually a miracle that Jesus performed, which is actually very, very intriguing. And sometimes we think, what was the point of this miracle? Because this miracle was not like the other miracles. The other miracles of the Lord Jesus Christ were restorative. Uh, they brought healing. Uh, they brought uh, wholeness and completeness. But in this miracle that Jesus performed, it was a destructive kind of a miracle. So the question that arises in our minds is, why do something like that? You've always been restoring. You've always been completing. You've always been healing. And now you make a miracle and you destroy something. Now, that's a very big change from what he had always been doing. But this miracle has to be connected with what had happened in Jerusalem in the temple. Remember, this was just a day after. It was still very, very fresh. And I'm sure that 
in the minds of the apostles, in the minds of the disciples, they were still probably thinking and pondering on what had happened the other day, wherein the Lord Jesus Christ turned, overturned the tables and He drove out the vendors. That was still fresh to them. And obviously, that was still fresh with the Lord Jesus Christ. So to be able to make sense of that miracle, we need to be able to connect it with what happened the other day. Otherwise, it will not make sense to us. And this is the reason why when we study the Bible, we have to study it within its context. We have to study the whole background. We have to study the whole chapter. And sometimes we need to go several chapters back just to be able to understand what is happening in a particular incident. What was the mindset of the Lord Jesus Christ? What was He thinking? What was He trying to explain? What was He trying to demonstrate? And these things are very, very important to be able to appreciate exactly the point of this miracle. And so let's take a look at what happened that morning. Again, let me just remind you, this happened a day after Jesus drove out the vendors from the temple. So let's take a look at Matthew 21, beginning at verse 18 and 19. And it goes, Now in the morning, when he, referring to Jesus Christ, was returning to the city, the city is Jerusalem, he became hungry. Seeing a lone fig tree by the road, he came to it and found nothing on it except leaves only. And he said to it, No longer shall there be any fruit from you, and at once the fig tree withered. Now, I'd like to show to you how a fig tree looks like. I took this picture of my wife, all right, with a fig tree. I asked her to pose before the fig tree. And just to give us a picture of how it looks like, you will notice how big the leaves are. It actually looks like our own uh, papaya, the papaya leaves, right? Because it's so big. Now, when the fig tree blooms like that, all right, and you find the green leaves, you actually expect that there would be fruit coming out of it. And unfortunately, at that time, when Jesus saw this lone fig tree, there was no fruit. And here, you don't also see any fruit. By the way, my wife did not curse that fig tree. All right? She did not do that. But going back to the story, the question is, why do this? Why, why destroy a tree? Why pick on a tree? Why do something like this? And we're probably thinking this tree is innocent. What did this tree do? The only thing this tree did was that it was not able to bear fruit. Why was Jesus picking on this tree? As I mentioned to you, unless you connect it with the events that happened the other day, it will not make sense. It will appear that Jesus was being capricious. It will appear that Jesus was just allowing, you know, that pent-up emotions to be vented. You probably think in those terms. But there is actually a lesson here. 
He was actually using this miracle to serve as a powerful illustration of the spiritual state of the nation of Israel. The nation of Israel was practically fruitless in spite of the mighty and glorious ministries of John the Baptist and the Lord Jesus Christ Himself, they remained unprepared. They remained unrepentant. And as a result of that was condemnation and, of course, judgment coming from the Lord. Think about this. God sends His herald, John the Baptist, and he was such a powerful preacher, such that people were trooping to where he was. He was in the Judean wilderness, which was actually a desolate place. It was desert. It's very hot there. It's very warm. There are no attractions in a place like the Judean wilderness. All you see are these caves and sand and heat. Why would they go to John the Baptist there? Well, they were going to John the Baptist because his message was powerful. His message was authoritative. His message gave them hope. They became inspired because they were under the Roman Empire. And somehow, the preaching of John the Baptist was giving them hope that probably at that time, they were about to receive the deliverance of God. And so they were all excited about that. And the message, of course, of John the Baptist was repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So you could probably just imagine the excitement the Jews were feeling at that time. For they had come under the heavy hand of the Roman people. And not only did, did they oppress the Jews, they came under very heavy taxation such that many of the Jews were actually in great poverty. And so this brought great hope. And there were some who repented. But you and I know that there were some Pharisees who came to be baptized. And, and John the Baptist told them that even before they could be baptized, they should show the fruit of repentance. The fruit of repentance. In other words, they were fruitless. They thought they had spiritual fruit, but that was not true at all as per the assessment of John the Baptist and the Lord Jesus Christ Himself. And then comes Jesus Christ in the scene. And all of a sudden, people started to gravitate and follow the Lord Jesus Christ. And in fact, what happened was some of the disciples of John the Baptist became envious. And they were saying, the people are, are leaving us and they are going to Jesus. And John the Baptist, however, knew exactly what his purpose and call was. His purpose and call was not to call people to himself, but to point them to the Messiah, point them to the Christ. And there we find the wonderful and classic statement of John the Baptist when he said, He, referring to Jesus Christ, must increase and I must decrease. And from then on, the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ grew and he went from place to place, from city to city, from synagogue to synagogue. 
He went to the Galilean region. He went to the Judean region. He preached the same message. And even more, he performed miracles. He performed signs and wonders. John the Baptist did not perform any miracle. But the ministry of Jesus Christ was filled with a lot of miracles and a lot of power and a lot of demonstration of God's greatness. People were getting healed. The dead were being raised back to life. Those who had leprosy were cleansed. And Jesus performed miracle upon miracle, therefore validating the fact that he was preaching the true message, that he was really the Messiah. And you would think that after all of that, they would receive the Lord and they would bear fruit. And friends, the sad story is that they did not bear fruit. They were like this fig tree. On the outside, it appeared good. You know, the Pharisees were called whitewashed tombs. They looked all right on the outside. But deep down inside, they were filled with, with anger. They were filled with lust. They were filled with covetousness and pride and arrogance. On the outside, they appeared to be spiritual. But deep down inside, they were like dead men's bones. Jesus knew exactly the state of their hearts. They were fruitless. And even with all the miracles that were performed, even with all the wonderful and powerful preaching, they still did not repent. Think about this. Nobody could excel Jesus Christ in preaching. His preaching was perfect. His preaching carried so much power and authority. Every jot and every tittle had a relevance to it. And yet, even when they heard the most powerful and the most wonderful and the perfect preacher, they still did not repent. They still remained fruitless. Now the question is, why? Why was the nation fruitless? And the answer based on the context, again, going back to what happened previously, the answer was prayerlessness. The answer was ineffectual prayers. And remember, I posed a challenge to each and every one of us that we should also be a house of prayer. Sometimes we forget what eternal life is all about. Sometimes we come up with lousy answers as to what eternal life is. Sometimes we answer and say, well, eternal life is living forever. Well, I think that's a wrong answer. There's some truth to that, but it is also wrong. It is incomplete. Why? Because everybody will live on forever. Even the unbelievers will live on forever. The question is, where? Some people will live on forever in heaven, and some people will live on forever in hell. So when we speak about eternal life, it is an incomplete definition when, when we say that it is life forever. The Lord Jesus Christ defined eternal life this way. Eternal life is knowing the Father. Eternal life is knowing God. And knowing God is not merely something academic or intellectual. It speaks about a covenant relationship. It speaks about intimacy. It speaks about communion. There is a real relationship between us and the Lord. 
That is why the Lord speaks in intimate terms. The church is called His bride. And the Lord Jesus Christ Himself is the bridegroom. Why do you think the Lord uses that very intimate analogy? Because that is how God wants our relationship to be with Him. It is a love relationship. In fact, the first two commandments of the Bible has to do with love. The first commandment is love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. So if we really think about it, what is this Christian life all about? It's all about love. First of all, loving God and then loving our neighbors. In that we find that the Christian faith is an expressive faith. It is a faith wherein we have this vital living relationship with God, wherein we find this, quote-unquote, romance between us and the Lord, wherein we are able to experience Him, wherein we encounter Him. Look at the book of Psalms. The book of Psalms is not dry at all. It is full of emotion. It is full of affection. It is full of the encounter of God. I mean, how else could the psalmist say, at thy right hand are pleasures forevermore? How could he possibly say that in your presence is fullness of joy? How could he say that unless he had encountered God? Unless he had an intimate relationship with the Lord. Those things you cannot write unless you have encountered God. And this is exactly what has happened to us. When we came to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ, our eyes were opened, our spiritual ears were opened, our hearts were opened. And beginning at that time when we accepted the Lord, we realized that God is not distant, that God is not impersonal, but He is a personal God. He is a God who loves and cares for us. And we felt that love. It was not just a thought. It was not just a concept. Because if it was merely a thought and a concept, do you think you would come to Christ? Do you think you would surrender your life to Him? I don't think so. The moment you accepted Christ, you felt something. You felt the power of the love of God. You felt the grace of God upon your life, and that changed your heart. That changed your mind. That caused you to turn to God and turn away from sin. Something happened. Something happened when we accepted the Lord Jesus Christ. And friends, let me just tell you, it's not just supposed to be an event. It's supposed to be a continuing thing. It's supposed to be a relationship that continues to grow and blossom and bear fruit. That is how that relationship should be. It should be nurtured. It's something that we cherish. It is a life that we embrace and we become very passionate about it. Because friends, when you're in love, you're very passionate. Amen? When you love something, you're, you're passionate about it. When you love a person, you're passionate about that person. When you love your work, you're passionate about it. When you have a hobby, you're very passionate about it. 
Look at how the world views sports. How, how they, they could cheer. And sometimes you find people, you know, getting into a riot because their home teams have lost. Why does that happen? That happens because of passion, albeit wrong passion. But herein we're talking about cultivating a relationship with the Lord. And friends, let me just say this. How in the world can we have this intimacy if there's no communion with the Lord? If we're not communicating with God, if we're not reaching God, if we're not waking up in the morning being conscious that we are in the very presence of the Lord, how can we expect to have intimacy unless you and I get into prayer? This was exactly the reason why Israel was largely unprepared. This was the reason they were fruitless. They were like this fig tree, beautiful on the outside, leaves blossoming, and yet there was no fruit. Could it be that if the Lord Jesus Christ would describe us, He would describe us like this fig tree? Very luscious, very, all the, the leaves all green, and yet without fruit. And this is the reason why I believe the Lord Jesus Christ follows through. And again, as we take a look at Matthew 21, 20 to 22, we need to connect it again to this whole context that the Lord was speaking about, about the prayerlessness of the people of Israel or their ineffectual prayers. So I'd like you to take a look at Matthew 21, verses 20 to 22. It says, seeing this, the disciples were amazed and asked, how did the fig tree wither all at once? I mean, just think about it. We, we have a, two big acacia trees on the outside. You probably see that when you're entering the gate. Just try to imagine this. Just imagine those acacia trees withering all at once. At the word of the Lord Jesus Christ, that withers all at once. Now, that's going to be a sight to behold. Maybe that would even scare us. That would scare us. I mean, we would probably think, who is this man? How could you do this? How, how could he cause a tree to wither all at once? It took many years to, to have this tree. And just like that, with his word, all of a sudden, it's gone. No more shade. It's, it's gone. How did that happen? They were simply amazed and at awe of the power that was displayed. Again, don't remove the context. Don't remove the reason why Jesus did that because if Jesus did that only because he saw no fruit, well, friends, that tells us that our God may be a capricious God. That's why, again, you need to connect it with the context so that you can make sense of it. And then notice what he does. He begins to talk about prayer. Isn't that interesting? He talks about Israel not making the temple a house of prayer. He now performs a miracle, a destructive miracle, in fact. And then he talks about prayer once again. 
You've got to be able to see the connection here. Jesus was making a point. And so let's move forward. It says, and Jesus answered and said to them, truly I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what was done to the fig tree, but even if you say to this mountain, be taken up and cast into the sea, it will happen. And all things you ask in prayer, believing, you will receive. You know what, what Jesus was saying here? By stating these things and connecting it with this indictment of the Jewish people at the temple, one can only conclude that their fruitlessness was as a result of their prayerlessness or their ineffective prayers, which did not have the element of faith. Think about what could have happened if they had faith. Think about what could have happened if they were a house of prayer. Think about the power that would be in display in Israel. Think about how it would change the political landscape, the spiritual landscape, the moral landscape in Israel. Think about the fact that if at that time they had accepted the Messiah instead of rejecting Him, think about what the nation of Israel would be right now. All of it, of course, now becomes theoretical. All we know is if they had only accepted the Messiah, things would have been better for them. And maybe the kingdom of heaven would have been established sooner than expected. Right now, we look at the kingdom of heaven, that millennial kingdom wherein Jesus will reign as king of kings as something that is in the distant future. That came as a result of the rejection of the Jews. So now we are looking forward when perhaps if they had accepted Christ, we would be looking backward. We would now be enjoying the blessings of, of that millennial kingdom. We would be part of that kingdom where there is prosperity, where there is righteousness, where Jerusalem would be the capital where Jesus Christ will be reigning as King of kings over the whole earth. All of that, of course, right now is moot and academic because they had already, already rejected Christ. But let's talk about ourselves. Think about the untapped potential that you and I have Think about the untapped potential of our own church. Think about what you and I could possibly do and how we could possibly influence and impact our society, our city, our province, and even our nation if we took the matter of prayer rather seriously. Here the Lord Jesus Christ explains to us what could possibly happen. I mean, has, has there anybody even thought of saying to a mountain, be cast into the sea? Has there anyone in the entire history of mankind prayed this prayer to remove a mountain and let it be cast into the sea? Not even Moses prayed a prayer like that. Not even Elijah prayed a prayer like that. Not even Elisha prayed a prayer like that. 
None of the great men and mighty women of God ever prayed that kind of a prayer. It's something that sounds preposterous. And yet Jesus is saying, you know what? If it's my will and you pray about it, it will happen. God is saying, Jesus is saying here, there's nothing impossible with God. Say that to your neighbor, please. There's nothing impossible with God. Say to your neighbor, there's nothing difficult with God. You know what this is saying? We have at our disposal heaven's resources, and heaven's resources are unlimited. They are infinite. We can ask God just even a portion, just even a portion of that power and even just that small portion of power is going to change the world that we're living in. All it takes is just a little power. I recall when Jesus said, and when he was speaking about casting the demons with a finger. I mean, think about the analogy here, the illustration of God's might and power. All, all he needs is his finger to cast out demons. That's how powerful he is. And I'd just like to share a little testimony right now. And I'd like to be able to testify about the power of God just so you and I could be inspired because something happened to us while we were in Jordan. And it could have been very difficult for me. Well, let me just show you a few pictures and I'll point out something. First of all, well, this is Brother Bebs and Sister Nora over there together with my wife and myself. And you can see me wearing a sweater, black sweater. But you will also notice I have a brown pouch right in front of me with a string. You know what that is? That's my passport. Now, we walked all the way to Petra back and forth, which was about five kilometers. I don't think I ever walked that far. There were times when we would walk nine kilometers. So you've got to be fit, actually, to be able to go to these places. Anyway, by this time, we were heading back to our bus, and we were quite tired, so we sat on a bench. And while we were sitting on the bench, I was feeling my sweat because I had my inner shirt and I had my sweater on. So I decided just to cool things off for me to take off my sweater. So I took off my sweater, forgetting that I had my passport. And so when I took it off, I did not know that it must have fallen off. And how do I know it fell off? I'll show you another picture. But Aside from that, my wife, because it was kind of hot, it was, I think, around 11 o'clock uh, lunchtime. The, the sun was beating down on us. So what my wife did was she used my sweater, all right, to cover her back because the sun there really penetrates your, your sweater, your clothes. and it's, So it was sort of a protection. So she used my black sweater to protect her. So... Just imagine, if ever 
my passport was on the sweater by my wife putting it on her back, for sure it would have fallen off. And how do I know I lost it? Well, let me show you another picture. This was taken by Brother Bebs. I'm with Bruce right over there with a the cowboy hat, all right? I'm the one with the black hat and dark shades, all right? I look like a movie star there, right? Anyway, let me just show you the, the, the jacket, the sweater is gone. Now, where's the brown pouch? Do you see the brown pouch? You don't see it, right? It's gone. But I did not notice that. So let me tell you the whole story. I didn't know it was gone, so we rode the bus. We had lunch, all right? So that was about an hour and a half of lunch, and then we rode back the bus. We're talking about something like two hours. And then I just checked on myself. I said, where's my passport? And so the first thing I did was to look on my seat because I'm thinking maybe it might have fallen to my seat. So that's the first thing I looked. It wasn't there. My wife was looking around her seat, and it was not there. So I checked our little bag, so we got things out of the bag. There was no brown pouch. There was no passport. Checked another bag. Again, nothing. And I said, I'm done. And I just realized, this is what happened, by the way, one week after, after our trip, or after our stay in Jordan, they, they banned Filipinos from entering Jordan. And this happened to one of our brothers who joined a Singaporean group. He was rejected at the border for one simple reason, because of what's happening in Marawi and also our declaring that we helped some Jewish refugees uh, during World War II. That became something that was loud, and they heard it. And so they stopped. The reason why I know this was this was the explanation to Dr. Ang because one of the people rejected a Filipino from our church as well. That was the reason that was given. So just imagine if I got stuck in Jordan without a passport, I'll have to uh, ask for another passport. It would take me probably two weeks or more, and I would probably be in difficulty not having enough money. I mean, what would happen to me? So I went to Pastor Joseph Joe, who was our uh, tour guide leader from the Filipino side, and so he talked to Rahid, our Jordanian uh, tour guide, and he said, Rahid, we've got to go back. We lost the passport. And so we were going back, and I was thinking, and Pastor Joseph Joe was panicking already. He was thinking, what do I do? Go to the embassy, blah, blah, blah. And I was thinking the same thing. What's going to happen? This is going to mess up the whole trip. And anyway, here's the miracle. And I went back to the seat. My wife just kept on looking, kept on looking. She placed the bag, our bag, on my seat. Remember, I checked the seat. There was no passport there. But she checked it again, and there was nothing. So finally, she just, out of, uh, out of giving up, she just got 
you know, frustrated. And so she lifted the bag. She was going to transfer it to the other seat. When she lifted the bag, lo and behold, my passport was there. Hallelujah. That was a miracle. And why did I share that to you? I mean, think about this. Sometimes we just forget who our God is, and we're thinking, how could that be? Well, friends, God could have sent an angel. I don't know. Or God could have taken that, the passport I left behind and made it reappear in the bus. He can do that. He turned how many fishes? He turned two fishes and five loaves of bread, and he multiplied it and fed how many people? 5,000. Only the men were counted. There were women there. There were children there. So how many people were fed? Probably 10, 15,000. Could God do that? My answer is yes. Because our God, for our God, nothing is impossible. Amen? Nothing is difficult with our God. So here's the challenge. As we meditate on these things and see the priority of prayer to Jesus as well as to His apostles, let us ask ourselves this question. If we as a church and as individual believers have imbibed a culture of prayer, could we honestly say that prayer has become a way of life for us? Are we breathing prayer? Is it our natural instinct? Is it, is it our natural response? Is it our first natural response? Remember, the Bible says, pray without ceasing. The Bible calls us to a life of prayer. I mean, wouldn't you like to talk to people whom you love? I love talking to my wife. My wife loves talking to me. I love talking to my kids. I love talking to my grandchildren. What a treat it is at times when we could have them sleep over in our house and have, you know, talks with them. And of course, in their small world, they, they think the whole world revolves around them. My granddaughter uh, one time said, sit here, papito, I'll make up you. I mean, they order you around. But what, what a thrill it is to, to be with them, with their little minds and their being naughty at times. You know, what a thrill that is. And this is exactly what our relationship with God is. It's a thrill to just fellowship with God. Amen? We're missing a lot when we're not communing with Him. We're missing a lot. We're, we're having some gaps and missing links in our lives when we are not enjoying the eternal life that God has given to us. Think about this. Communing with the God of the universe. Communing with the God who created the galaxies. Communing with the God who created the heavens and the earth and the seas and the mountains and the hills and the valleys. The God who created the stars which we could not even number. Think about that. God in His infinite glory 
would commune with us, tiny, puny, little beings. What a great privilege that is. Amen? What a great honor and privilege that the King of Kings could commune with us and fellowship with us. And we're missing it. We're missing it because we're not praying enough. We're missing it because when we wake up in the morning, all we think about is our job and the things that we need to pay for. We're missing it. We're missing a large part of what God wants us to enjoy. We're missing it. And I hope that this sermon is going to change that. Now you might say, but there's no more temple. Right. The temple was destroyed. It was burned down in 70 AD. So what do we have right now? Here's the good thing. The good thing is, and by the way, when Paul wrote this, the temple had not yet been destroyed. But with the words that Paul penned in Corinthians, he actually was saying that the temple is obsolete. That is, it is of no use to you. Why? Because 1 Corinthians chapter 6, 19 states this, that God no longer dwells in a physical temple, but He dwells in our bodies. Amen? That is so mind-blowing. Look at 1 Corinthians 6, 19. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you? whom you have from God, and that you are not your own. I mean, this is so mind-blowing. It's so difficult to wrap your brains around this concept that, that the eternal, infinite, glorious, majestic God lives in this mortal body of mine. But that's exactly what you have. And nobody else in the whole world has that except you, believer in Christ, except you who are sons and daughters of God. You are right now the temple of God. The word temple is, comes from the Greek word naos, which is the equivalent of the holy place, the temple itself. You are right now that temple. That's what Paul is saying. He's saying, you see the temple in Jerusalem? How grand and glorious it is, it is, it's obsolete. It has no function anymore for you who are now in the New Testament because you who are in Corinth, who are so far away from Jerusalem, don't worry about it. You are right now that temple. Amen? You are right now that temple. Hallelujah. Declare this with me, brothers and sisters. Give the Lord a big hand, please. Declare this, I am the temple of God. Declare to your neighbor, you are the temple of God. Oh, what a blessing that is. Amen. Hallelujah. Oh, what a blessing that is. Unimaginable. There is no longer a thick veil that separates us from God. That veil was torn from top to bottom. It was as thick as my fist. 
It was torn from top to bottom, and that symbolized our being now able to enter into the very presence of God. As such, there should no longer be any tentativeness or hesitation in approaching God. There are no hindrances. There are no impediments. There are no blockades. There are no barriers. There is no chasm that now separates us from God. It has been broken through by the very presence of God. It has been broken through by the blood of Jesus Christ. It has been broken through by the cross. And we are free to enter the very presence of our God and enjoy Him forever. That's why Hebrews 4.16 states this. Therefore, let us draw near. You know what God is saying? He's saying, he's, he's telling me, draw near, come on. Come on. Come to me. Come to my embrace. Let us draw near with confidence. Meaning to say, you don't approach God with a bowed head and say, Lord, can I approach your presence? You're not shaking and saying, Lord, can I approach your presence? Now, friends, the Bible says, let us draw near with confidence, with your head held up high. It says here, to the throne of grace, so that, here's the purpose statement, so that, we may receive mercy and find grace. How many of us want mercy? Raise your hands. Oh, I want mercy. Amen. How many want grace here? I want grace. Amen. Who doesn't want mercy and who doesn't want grace? We want that. We want the favor of God. We want the blessing of God. And, and God is saying, you know what? That's available for you that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Now, let me ask you this question. When is the time you, you're, you're not needy? When is the time when you are not needy? When is the day wherein you say, Lord, today, today's Monday, Lord, I don't need you for today. Maybe Tuesday, Lord, I'm meeting my boss and I'm meeting the board, Lord, uh, I need you. Can we say, can we ever say that there is a day we do not need God? Every single day, we need the Lord. Amen. We need Him to protect us. We need Him to preserve us. We need Him to sustain us. We need Him to build us up. We need Him to inspire us. We need Him so that we could have courage. We need Him so that we could have endurance. We need Him so that we could have self-control. And there is not a single day when you and I do not need the Lord. The genius of the Christian life is we don't have to do it. All we need to do is depend on Him, find our sufficiency in Him, find our adequacy in Him, and in Him we are complete. In Him we are complete. In Him our needs are met. Amen? 
Amen. What a great God we serve. Hallelujah. What a wonderful God we serve. What a merciful God we serve. What a gracious God we serve. It's just so amazing, friends, when you really meditate on this and try to digest this and make this a part of of how you think, how you process things. It's just so mind-blowing. You know, confidence was something that was not present in the Old Testament. They had always approached the presence of God with much trepidation and fear because anytime they bungled on something, they could die on the spot. Let me just show you the high priest. What I'd like to show you are the bells at the hem. You see those bells? Right at the bottom, all right? What do you think those bells are for? Those bells are there just so the other priests who are outside the Holy of Holies, they're in the holy place. The Holy of Holies is the place where the high priest goes in. It's for them to find out. There's a thick veil that divides them. It's for the priests who are in this compartment to find out if that guy, if that high priest is still alive. So for as long as the bells are tinkling, they're thinking, oh, he's still alive. The moment it stops tinkling, they have a rope tied to the priest because they know something must have gone wrong. The priest is dead. We've got to pull him out because they could not just enter the veil. They would die on the spot. So they had a rope so that they could pull him out. They could pull out this dead corpse. So think about the fact if you're a high priest. And you would think, wow, I mean, high priest with, with that mitter on, on your head and the very colorful vest that you have. I mean, it was really, if you, if you have a colored uh, representation of this, this is so grand. I mean, this is so, so royal in, in its appearance. And you would think, wow, I mean, to be a high priest, that must be fantastic. Well, friends, I just tell you, if I were high priest, every time I'd enter the Holy of Holies, I'd probably be thinking, Lord, don't make me make a mistake, Lord. Not one, Lord. I love my family. I love my wife. I love my children. I love my grandchildren. Please let me go home. Because if I made a single mistake, I'd die on the spot. And it's actually a powerful picture. And you might think, how, how harsh can that be? Well, friends, it's this. We don't understand the holiness of God. You know why we don't understand it? Why we cannot comprehend it in all its fullness? Because we have this sinful nature. This sinful nature in us makes us selfish. It makes us arrogant and, and proud. It makes us spiritually blind. And that's why at times we may be sinning against God, but we're not bothered because we're exonerating ourselves. We're making all these lame excuses. And, and we don't really understand the holiness of God. But when something like that happens, when the high priest dies on the spot with one mistake in the Holy of Holies, that makes you understand that 
God, that this God that we are serving is a holy God. You dare not make a single mistake. It opens your eyes and you just realize you don't mess with God. You don't mess with Him. This fear was not just something experienced among the priests, by the way, but it was also common among the Jewish people. During the time of Moses, the Israelites did not want to speak directly to God out of fear that they would die in the presence of the Lord. Look at Deuteronomy 5, please, verses 24 to 27. Moses was speaking here. You said, speaking to the people of Israel, Behold, the Lord our God has shown us His glory and His greatness, and we have heard His voice from the midst of the fire. We have seen today that God speaks with man and yet lives. Now why then should we die? <laughs> they were so scared of God. God, they were so intimidated with God, they said, for this great fire will consume us. If we hear the voice of the Lord our God any longer, watch what they were saying, then we will die. For who is there of all flesh who has heard the voice of the living God speaking from the of the fire as we have and lived? Go near and hear all that the Lord our God says, then speak to us, Moses. All that the Lord our God speaks to you, we will hear and do it. Just, just don't let God speak directly to us. Think about being in the Old Testament and think about the joy of being in the New Testament wherein we have this freedom to just sit on the lap of our Father and just look at Him and behold Him and stare at His beauty. Think about the freedom that you and I have to talk to God and express our feelings and even our disappointments and frustrations, and He hears us. Think about the fact that when we cry out for help, God is just watching His Word to perform it. And there is where we see the wonder of the New Testament. Emmanuel, which means God with us, has become a lot more real to us because God is not only with us, not only is He Emmanuel, God is in us. Amen? He is in us. So if you ask yourself, if somebody asks you, where's God? Right here. This is the dwelling place of God. You are the dwelling place of God. Hallelujah. Amen. <laughs> Blessed be the name of the Lord. Hallelujah. Give Him praise, brethren. Give Him praise. Hallelujah. So since we are now the temple of God, we should be defined as a house of prayer. And this is what the church should be, and this is something that was true with the churches in Korea way back in the 1980s. 
Allow me to share my experiences in Korea as I shared it in my book, University of Contentment, which is coming out uh, through OMF this coming June. So uh, let me just give you a sneak preview of what, a portion of what I wrote. I wrote something there about prayer. So listen up. This is part of that book. It goes, I am thankful for my experience with the churches in Korea, and they have somehow added something that has shaped my view of ministry. I've been to Korea around five times, and the one word that keeps popping in my brain when it comes to Korea is prayer. If there's one thing that the Korean churches have contributed to the universal church, it is the prominence and value they give to prayer. I have visited all kinds of denominations and churches in Korea, and they all look alike in one aspect, prayer. Their Friday overnight prayers are always full house. The prayer presider begins with a loud shout calling on the name of God in Korean. And then you hear a mass of humanity praying aloud like a mighty army moving forward in battle. In one church I visited, I saw people praying inside the toilet and in the sidewalk of the church premises. I saw mothers praying with their babies lying in mats. I likewise visited their prayer mountains and witnessed their dawn watches with many people praying. My wife and I visited a prayer mountain which has had a steady stream of people who have been in a prayer chain 24-7 since the outbreak of the Korean Civil War, which separated the South from the North. We were allowed to pray there, and we discovered that you have to go to a warm-up room where you pray for an hour, and then you enter the open-air cubicle where you pray for another hour, and then you go out to a cool-down room where you pray for another hour. The total number of hours for all the prayer warriors that go up that mountain is three hours. My wife and I also had an immersion program with a Korean pastor and his family, and we were gracious, graciously hosted in their home for one month. The Korean pastor's name is Reverend Lee Nam Tae, and he and his family modeled to us what a life of prayer is all about, Korean style. When his children come home, the first place they go to is the prayer closet, and they pray there before socializing with the rest of the family. They were residing beside many hills, and we would make frequent trips to those hills to pray. They had a daily morning watch, which we likewise attended and saw how prayer was a lifestyle, not only among pastors, but even for ordinary members. My wife and I had valued prayer even before this immersion, but they surely brought us to another level of praying. This is the reason why after our trip to Korea, we began to dream and pray for our own prayer mountain, and the Lord had graciously answered our prayers, and our prayer mountain has been a frequent venue for our once-a-month congregational prayer and fasting. End of quote. Jesus said, My house shall be called a house of prayer, and my prayer 
is that will be true for us today. Again, let me talk to you young people. I'm picking on you. And I'm telling you, our times are numbered. You will have to take that responsibility which we have passionately nurtured all over these years, all through these years. Young people, you are the hope of this country. You are the hope of your unsaved loved ones, and you are the hope for this moral landscape to change, the spiritual landscape to change, even the political landscape to change. You are the hope of this country. But you know what? You have to start now, not when we're gone. When you're going to compete in the Olympics, you don't prepare a day before joining the Olympics. When you want to join the Olympics, you have to train many years before. Sometimes even to have to train while you're a child. And as you grow and gain strength, when, the Olympic, when your Olympic event is about to begin, you will be ready for that time. Young people, the time to get ready, listen up, was yesterday. The time to get ready was yesterday. We're too late. We need to catch up. And God, in His graciousness, will still hear our prayers. But we better start here and now. Amen? Let's give the Lord a big hand, please. Let me give you a couple of minutes to respond to this preaching. It's not enough to listen to an hour of preaching We've got to respond, and we've got to really say to God, Lord, what are you telling me? And it's about time that we truly take responsibility for our actions and for our mindset and really be serious about our faith. We are not in a playground. We are in a battleground. And these are things we must not take lightly. Remember the consequences that the Jews have suffered up until now. So let me give you a couple of minutes to pray. Our Heavenly Father, we just want to thank you, Lord, for your word. And our prayer, O oh Father, is that we would respond to you in a way which honors you. May we not dilly-dally on this responsibility and privilege you've given us, for after all, it is a delight to bask in your presence. It is pure and unabated joy to just allow you to minister to us as we minister to you. And so we pray, O oh God, that you will put seriousness in our hearts and 
create a determination and a resolution to make things right. Because these things that we have been talking about, they should have happened yesterday. But Lord, we know you're a God of second and many chances. And so Lord, while we are still alive, while we're still healthy and strong, help us do the right thing. For after all, what do we have to lose? We have everything to gain. By communing with you, fellowshipping with you, waking up early in the morning, making our day right by talking to you and you talking back to us. Thank you for today, Lord. You have spoken. Now, Lord, let your Holy Spirit do His work in our hearts. Thank you also for the opportunity to give our tithes, our grace gifts, and our offerings. Lord, use them for the glory of your holy name. And you, would you bless and prosper us as well, that we might continue to bless your work. In Jesus' name we pray, amen and amen. Praise the Lord.